If you enjoy learning about NDM, you have to join us at the 16th International Conference on Naturalistic Decision Making. You'll get to engage directly with NDM experts and thought leaders from around the globe. Learn about the latest research that's helping deepen our understanding of expertise and explore immersive interactive experiences that can help accelerate learning and proficiency in your organization. It's all happening this year in Orlando, Florida from October 25th through 27th. See the full agenda and find out how to register for in-person or online attendance by visiting our website, naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're very happy today to talk to Simon Henderson. Simon is an independent deception consultant working in the UK and the US. His career has involved researching, teaching, and consulting on deception, counter-deception, information operations, and cyber operations within a variety of government, military, and law enforcement organizations. He is passionate about novel and pro-social applications of these fields. Simon received a higher national diploma in computer science from Portsmouth Polytechnic in 1987. He covers his work on his blog, deceptionbydesign.com, which is also the title of a book he's currently writing. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and nice to uh, catch up with you guys again. Right. So let's, uh, I think we want the, our listeners to get a bit of background on you. Um, in particular, can you sort of walk us through your pathway of, of coming to a career in deception? Yeah, I... I always describe my career as as really being in in two halves. The the first half of my career was really spent looking to improve sense making, decision making, and collective performance. And the second half of my career was spent trying to make those things worse, um, largely in uh, adversary teams uh, in counterterrorism, uh, law enforcement. Uh, so trying to disrupt uh, criminal organisations, sense making, decision making, uh, etc. So um, it really. Began in 1987, I joined uh, the Ministry of Defence at Fort Halstead in Seven Oaks. I was employed as a scientific officer and uh, really as a computer scientist. I spent uh, a couple of years uh, developing simulations to evaluate the impacts of uh, planning and decision support systems on military command and control. So I was using system dynamics, a, a blend of sort of softer systems, but also some quite hard uh, simulation and uh, optimization uh, approaches. Um, but after a, a, a couple of years doing that, I transferred to a group that was literally across the road, and uh, it was doing experimental and field evaluations of command planning tools. 
So essentially seeking to understand command planning uh, without support tools and then to measure and evaluate the impact that support tools would have on those processes. Uh, and it was in this group that I uh, met uh, and started working with my, my good friend and, and colleague, uh, Raf Pascal. And it led to about you know, in the order of 15 years, uh, work, studying, sense-making, decision-making, and, and collective performance in military planning and intelligence teams. Um, the part of the MOD I was in uh, was privatized in 2001 uh, and turned into a commercial company called Kinetic. Uh, and for the first couple of years in Kinetic, that was around um, – I so said the early 2000s, but there was a push to try and expand uh, into non-defense and security areas. So uh, I was involved in studying decision-making in uh, surgical teams, uh, oil exploration and uh, facility management teams, European Space Agency, police firearms teams, crisis management teams, uh, I was supporting a, a team that was racing to the South Pole. So it expanded very broadly into uh, other areas. Um, but then the work sort of came back very much to a defense and security focus. And uh, around that time, I put in a proposal to look at what the military could learn about deception in other domains. I've, I've had a passion and an interest in magic and conjuring since my, my childhood. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at principles that could be drawn from that field and others to support military planners when they're, they're trying to work out how to go about deceiving an enemy force. And that work was funded and it led to the second half of my career, which was about another 15 years of almost continuously funded work studying deception and influence uh, in the real world and uh, increasingly in cyberspace as well. So uh, it was a interesting process to go from trying to make those processes better to looking at how they go wrong and potentially uh, in certain circumstances can be led to go wrong. Right. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> is quite a turn. Um, so, so back to sort of those uh, issues around sense making and, and planning. What and, and you mentioned your your colleague was that sort of your first exposure to NDM, or how did you how did you first become aware of NDM? Yeah. Well, um, initially, but as I mentioned, we were trying to evaluate the impact of, of support tools on um, decision-making and, and broader collective planning processes. And it was very clear that we actually needed to understand the, the, the non-supported, the, the manual processes in a lot more detail to be able to, to really um, say anything useful about how these tools were, were having an impact. And increasingly, we started studying those processes more and more and actually had quite a long time where we weren't looking at technology at all. And as, you know, around the early 90s, we were trying to explain what we were seeing, and what people were, were telling us about their decision-making processes using the models we, we had available, um, which were largely sort of classical analytical models. And... 
at the surface level, it made sense to, to, to use some of those approaches for, for understanding what we were seeing because military doctrine was describing decision-making in those terms, you know, generating multiple courses of action, having a predefined set of criteria against which to evaluate those courses, um, applying each course of action against these criteria, evaluating it on a scale of 1 to 10, putting in weightings, adding up numbers and, and picking the course of action that had the highest score. Um, so it, it's there's some sort of correspondence, but at the same time, that wasn't what we were seeing. That wasn't what people were, were telling us. And it was a, a colleague of ours, George Brander, who was working at the uh, sort of naval uh, military research site down in Portsmouth, who first mentioned and passed us, uh, I think it was a couple of papers from Gary Klein on um, recognition prime decision making. And just straight away, these light bulbs <laughs> went off. Um, these approaches corresponded with what people were telling us and what we were seeing. Uh, and very quickly, we decided we needed to understand these approaches better and put in a proposal to essentially do a review of the the, the science and, and practice of, of decision-making and supporting decision-making um, and uh, essentially did a, a literature review plus a lot of other analytical work on the, the back of that to try and understand what theory said about decision-making. And that work, uh, we invited uh, Gary over to review it. Uh, so, again, this was early early 90s, and um, Gary provided a, a peer review for that. I, I remember we were quite apprehensive about him coming and looking at what we were doing. Uh, the day before he uh, arrived to to talk to us and, and go through our, our work, um, we ended up working through the night. We were uh, developing, uh, we, we initially was, were struggling with some of the, the different terminology that seemed to be used to describe similar things. So you know, models that would talk about um, mental models or frames or scripts or schema. Um, and so we, we started trying to draw out this this huge matrix of the terminology that was relating to these different components of decision-making. And it, it just expanded out into this huge task that took us ages. Uh, and so we, we somehow ended up working through the night before Gary <laughs> arrived. Uh, I managed to, to go home and at least have a, a shower before I came back into to work and he arrived. Um, but the very first thing Gary said to us, um, having looked at our work, was what this huge matrix was uh, about um, and who it was for. And it was a, a question we'd never really considered. <laughs> and um, as he probed us about how somebody would, would use it, it was very clear that this um, thing that had taken us ages was really of very little use, and we ended up leaving it out of the report. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, our, that was sort of the route into to NDM, and we very quickly uh, established a relationship with Gary, and he invited us over to um, talk about some of our, our work at I think the second uh, NDM conference in uh, Dayton. So uh, yeah, that was sort of how we got into NDM initially. So you got in, and, and you realized that these terms were sort of all over the map. It sounds mm. like. 
Yes, yeah, it, it was an impossible task to try and resolve them all. Uh, and so this, this huge, great big complex um, thing that we spent way, way too long on um, was of very little use in the end. Right. So we decided to leave it out. Yeah, the the terminology piece, especially in those days, I imagine, uh, as these models were were first taking shape and, and discussions were ongoing, I imagine that was a, a very confusing time. It, it, uh, it was, yeah, yeah. But but so just to walk back a little bit, so so it sounds like you're a you're a young uh, computer scientist uh, who's now out watching people perform in the real world, hmm. and going in with this idea in your head that uh, that they're going to be corresponding to doctrine. Uh, that wasn't sitting well with you, though. It sounds like as you were as you were seeing what they were actually doing, hmm. and so you get these descriptions of of real world decision making. Uh, it, it, that felt like a good match to you. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, it uh, it just intuitively made sense. And uh, when we were asking people a, a, about their decision making, they were talking about just knowing what to do. Um, we were asking them whether they were, you know, how they were were making decisions. I mean, it could very much corresponded with what Gary was talking about with the fire commanders. Uh, people were just using intuition and their experience to uh, know the kinds of things that they should be doing under under certain circumstances and adapting what they had done previously to, to fit the problem at hand. We. Following the, the the back of this initial survey of the theory of decision making, the, we put in a, another proposal that was um, accepted to do some uh, experimental work, where we um, ran a series of exercises with uh, sixteen military uh, command planners and subjected them to a range of different scenarios um, where they were having to make quite complex decisions. And we videotaped the processes. We gave them a very rich um, sort of high fidelity simulation environment where we had um, simulation of all of the facilities and information flows and resources that they would have uh, in headquarters. So it, it was in a laboratory, but it was a, a room with lots of facilities, which corresponds exactly with the environment that they would be doing this in for real. Um, but uh, it was video recorded, and we also uh, by then had done a critical decision method course with Gary. I think it was yeah. the, the, the first course he had run in the UK. So we were using uh, critical decision uh, method interviews to... Um, elicit a deeper understanding together with video playback. And we were using uh, speak loud protocols as well that we'd spent quite a lot of time developing to really get into the detail of understanding how people were, were making decisions. And we spent weeks and weeks um, transcribing and codifying what they were telling us in order to look at which of these models that were available to us best helped explain what we were, were seeing. And we found studying, I think it was somewhere around 600 individual decisions we had identified across these scenarios 
that's uh, 87% of the decisions were best explained using recognition-primed decision-making. And that gave us a, a lot of confidence in um, really adopting these these methods as a, as a primary set of tools for understanding and explaining and also then ultimately looking at supporting and enhancing these, these processes. Um, we had a, a, a chapter in the, I think it was the, the second uh, NDM uh, conference book, uh, and that seemed to get picked up and was quite widely referenced uh, in sort of military command thinking in, in the UK. There was uh, an article that was published in the British Army Review uh, about a, a year or so later, written by a brigadier. Um, and our study had found that about 2% of the decisions we were, were, were studying had, had been made using these, these more traditional methods where people were comparing options and, and using some sort of criteria for evaluating options. But they tended to be things that involved quite quantitative information, you know, uh, looking at time and space and movements and logistics and, and things like that. Um, so uh, around... Two percent, and th this article appeared in British Army Review that was titled "Why Do We Teach a Planning Process That Only Two Percent of Our Staff Use?" Uh, and it was using our our work as a primary source, and that isn't what we had said at all. It was nothing about two percent of planners using it. It was about two percent of the decisions we had studied. So the the sort of premise of the article was slightly slightly warped from from uh, what we had found. But nonetheless, that article served as a as a really good catalyst for increasing um, uh, sort of awareness and interest in intuitive decision-making. And uh, it was very gratifying to see, certainly within the UK, that uh, recognition of intuitive decision-making um, got formal recognition, uh, was put into uh, certainly army, uh, at the time army doctrine, uh, and that it was recognized as, as a valid approach, together with, with more analytical approaches under certain conditions. But uh, very gratifying to, to, to see that work leading to having an impact on, on doctrine. Right. Yeah, I remember Gary sort of having similar feelings when the recognitional planning model started getting uh, that, that kind of attention as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, though, um, so the recognition's great uh, and, and the gratification's great. What, what kind of pushback, though, was there? Surely some folks were were not keen to uh, to change the tradition. Um, from from the, uh, the the actual doers, the, the the people that were doing the the, the planning, I, I'd say we had no pushback at all. Quite quite the opposite. Um, it it just all made sense and was it corresponded with what they did. And I think um, that official recognition that there was validity in in those uh, approaches and recognition of those approaches was was um, a, a relief or, or certainly um, uh, provided some sort of top cover for, for intuition um, being a, a, an appropriate way for experienced uh, planners to to do their decision making um, there was of course 
you know, issues concerning validity and reliability and um, yeah, when is it appropriate to use more more formal structured uh, approaches? Is there a danger of, of missing uh, you know, unseen opportunities by just using intuition? Um, you know, doctrine still talked about comparing multiple courses of action, um, and of course the the whole issue about is that really an effective way of, of using precious time uh, particularly when you're under under pressure to to plan things quite rapidly and there's a, a lot of complexity you know trying to quantify these very um, broad plans and, and and apply numbers to them uh, you know doctrine dictates that some commanders would want to see these multiple courses being presented uh, and yeah, there are some benefits in in doing that if if you can, but yeah, these sorts of issues were were um, certainly being being discussed. I think the only only pushback really came from um, some of the sort of harder modelers and um, operational research uh, people that were were very much into trying to quantify. And you know, as as I started myself you know, developing simulations and um, numerical models of some of these processes for looking at trying to represent and, and, and simulate these things, you know, intuitive decision-making doesn't lend itself necessarily um, immediately to to simulation. So I, I, that was really the only point of friction, I, I, I would say. Interesting. So, hey, Simon, I wanted to ask you about this turning point in your career you described where um, you wrote a proposal about what the military could learn from the magic conjuring and deception community. So this mm-hmm. link seemed very obvious to you, but I'm wondering if you would just tell us more about kind of the insights that, that drove that uh, emphasis and how you convinced people that this was a great direction to go in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, 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 have an interest in magic and, and conjuring that goes back to my childhood. Uh, and I just, part of me wondered whether I could get the, the MOD Ministry of Defense to, to pay for some magic books. <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, I started looking into military uh, deception and it seemed to be uh, an area where there wasn't a great deal of uh, attention or focus very very little in the way of research that existed within the the UK and I was very interested in, in deception in other domains as as well you know, scams and confidence tricks and animal deception political deception um, many many different areas where, where you know deception occurs and so um, it uh, sounds sounds highly unlikely, but I, I promise this is true. I, I wrote a proposal suggesting that uh, we do a review of deception in other domains and see if we could synth- synthesize a, a set of principles that could inform military deception planning. And that initial proposal was rejected on the basis of not being innovative enough, which I, I was quite surprised by. And uh, again, it was uh, my colleague, George Brander, who suggested just changing the title and resubmitting it. 
um, just to see what would happen. In, uh, and I, I swear to you, that is is what I did. I, I changed the title and I resubmitted it, and it was accepted. And there were comments about how how innovative it was. And I can only presume that the people that were assessing or reviewing the proposal had, had changed because it was the the, the same proposal. Uh, and and so it was such a an appropriate way to, to start off <laughs> the study of deception. Um, but yeah, there, there were certain individuals, um, primarily in the, the uh, military in, intelligence areas, it, it was funded through a, a, an intelligence funding route and despite the fact that it was primarily looking at what planners could could draw from other domains, and that um, initial work, which reviewed deception in many different areas, including political deception and uh, advertising and marketing, as well as the other areas I had mentioned, um, pulled out a, a set of generic principles uh, about how um, there may be generic processes that could be uh, transported from other areas and uh, employed to support the creative thinking about how to, to fool adversaries. And that work seemed to go down very, very well. I uh, was asked to then support a, a range of um, other studies. Uh, there were some specific questions I, I was asked to, to look at exploring um, and put in some additional proposals and it, it just expanded and um, ran for well 15 another 15 years of working across a wide wide range of, of different areas um, where deception is employed and, and uh, a, a range of different studies looking at uh, really getting a, a better handle on the, the psychological basis on, on which people um, are fooled. So, so give us an example of one of these generic processes. Okay. Um, so something like misdirection. Uh, misdirection is a, a slightly woolly term. It's, it's widely used in, in magic. And um, generally, it's recognized as getting people to look away from where some secret move takes place. Um, but in reality, misdirection is about controlling uh, a, a target's attention, leading them to, to look in uh, a place that is different from where some secret action is occurring. Um, and there are lots of other types of, of misdirection as well. So it's not just affecting where somebody looks, but it's affecting when they look, uh, affecting how they look. Um, and there are ways of, of misdirecting how people remember and recall something. There are linguistic um, forms of misdirection to change emphasis of, of how people are processing information. It, but typically, misdirection tends to be used in terms of affecting where somebody is looking. Uh, and there are sort of two primary ways to, to, to do that, um, which correspond with, with theories of bottom-up and, and top-down attention. Um, you can um, seek to seduce their attention and uh, attract their attention through uh, conspicuity. So things like movement, contrast, um, your absence under some conditions, size, repetition, various things are that are highly conspicuous 
will lead somebody to, to tend to, to look at those things in an environment. And from the top-down perspective, if you can create certain expectations in somebody's head, for example, through repetition or conditioning or by portraying causality, um, leading them to project forward into the, the future, then people will direct their attention to where they're expecting something interesting to occur. And there are other things as well, saliency, you know, people will pay more attention to things in the environment that correspond with things that are at the forefront of, of their mind, that they're currently thinking about. If, if one of those things is present, you're probably going to look at it. Um, so magicians use, use this all the time. They use movement. Um, and uh, conspicuity to attract attention. If you're palming a, a coin, for example, you might um, stare at the hand that is pretending to hold the coin as it moves away. Um, so you're using uh, sort of social um, uh, effects to lead your audience to also look at that empty hand. Um, but yeah, so misdirection is, is used a lot in, in magic, but it's also used in pretty much every other domain where um, where uh, deception occurs. So the military will use diversions, will create a lot of noise um, in one particular area of the battlefield to seduce the enemy's attention to that area whilst they can move in a, a different location with less attention being paid to them. Um you know, politicians use misdirection by, for example, releasing news stories that attract a lot of attention um, to take attention away from something they don't want. Um, you know, the press, for example, to be paying too much attention to, so uh, are using highly conspicuous stories to try and shape and control uh, attention. Um, animals use misdirection to... Um, seduce predators' uh, uh, attention in certain ways. So, for example, uh, plovers, uh, kill deers, um, have ground nests, which uh, when they have chicks in, if, if a fox starts approaching the, the nest, the adult bird will simulate having a broken wing um, some species actually have red patches under their, their wing to, to which sort of simulate blood, but they'll show signs of distress and um, start struggling on the ground to lure a fox away from the nest and will keep hopping just out of reach of the, of the fox and lead it away from, from the nest. But again, it, it's you get these generic principles of using conspicuity uh, and creating expectations to, to affect um, your opponent's attention. And you see that being used pretty much everywhere where where deception occurs. So that's sort of a, a generic generic approach. And there are many, many other generic um, strategies that are employed once you start looking at uh, deception across a variety of different domains. And it's this sort of commonality uh, in these strategies that has really been driving a lot of my th thinking around deception, trying to collect these patterns, these recurring strategies that you, you see being used in very different and, and diverse domains. That has really been a route into getting a much better understanding of deception as a generic set of phenomena.
So because this is something that you study, do you see it everywhere? Uh, yes, yeah, a- absolutely everywhere. Um, I start, started writing a, a paper called, um, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what, what the title was, 10, 10 Cases of Deception Before Breakfast. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea being that from the moment you, you wake up, you're, you're exposed to deception. Yeah, absolutely everywhere. Whether that's uh, having set your alarm clock to wake you up ten minutes before the time you actually need to wake up, uh, you get up, you go into the bathroom, and suddenly you're surrounded by by products. Yeah, your your toothpaste has foaming agent in it that fulfills absolutely no function whatsoever, other than giving you a mouthfeel to suggest that there's some sort of process taking place in your mouth. There's absolutely no need for your toothpaste to to foam up whatsoever. Um, you know the scented shower products that you use, the fact you're putting on deodorant to mask body odor, uh, and you know uh, block the perception of of um, you know, scents that are already there. Um, you, know, you turn on the radio and there are adverts, the packaging of your breakfast products. You, you, just from the moment you open your, your eyes, you're being exposed to deception. And once you start recognizing deception, you just, you know, I, I guess it's a, the anybody working in any certain profession, you, you become a lot more attuned to, to spotting and noticing it everywhere. But it, it is everywhere around us. Uh, we're exposed all the time to things that are deceptive and manipulative um, without having any real awareness because we're so so used to seeing these things. Right. Well, that's really ruining my entire day. So thank you. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a question sort of crystallizing in my head, and I think I need to sort of talk through it uh, to lay it out. But so what you just talked about, all the strategies um, are geared toward uh, deceiving, let's just say the the common pedestrian, if you will. But if we go back to the RPD model, uh, I, mean, I mean, sort of stage one is finding those, you know, those important cues that tell you more precisely sort of what's going on in a given situation. So I'm wondering, how does deception against experts look, or, or, or what are you trying to get at there? Because if the, if the idea is, you know, the, those sort of common elements of deception might work against novices, if you will, or the, the sort of common pedestrian, um, what, what sort of things are you thinking about as you're trying to deceive other experts? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a very good uh, Good point you you raise there, um, because in in many domains where deception occurs, there is asymmetry in the level of expertise. So in in magic, magic relies on the fact that your audience does not understand the principles of of magic, um, and and that asymmetry in expertise is really what enables a lot of magic to to work. In other domains like military deception. Right. You're up against an adversary that is very familiar with with the military, so um, they may not be that familiar with deception necessarily, but they understand the uh, environment within which deception is taking place, and therefore are far better uh, able to recognise when uh, things are, are different from what they uh, would expect. To be seeing, so uh, deceiving experts in some senses is harder 
because they have more understanding about norms and prototypicality uh, and can spot deviations and anomalies that may be, may be present. But at the same time, expertise and reliance upon recognition uh, and upon the whole area of, of pattern matching and pattern recognition um, makes people potentially more vulnerable to, to being deceived. And uh, there was a, a guy, Barton Whaley, uh, one of the sort of um, probably greatest uh, um, yeah, experts on, on deception, put together a, uh, a taxonomy that describes uh, a set of strategies for both uh, hiding things that are real and showing things that are, are false. And essentially, it's all about manipulating the cues and indicators that together present the patterns that create meaning that uh, supports essentially recognition and uh, RPD. Um, so understanding the, the, the patterns that experts use to make sense of the world is fundamental to looking at strategies for presenting what appear on the, the, the face of it to be patterns of normality that can conform to, to experts' expectations about uh, what they would expect to see in the environment. Um, so, you know, strategies uh, identified by Wade include something like repackaging as a way of hiding something that is real. You take um, an object or a process uh, and you add other cues and indicators around it to essentially create a wrapper uh, around that object or process, and it's the the wrapper that's being perceived and used to support um, you know, pattern matching, um, and the the underlying objects or actions are are, are not seen. Uh, an example, a very simple example of that would be in the Second World War. There was a, a device uh, produced called a, a sun shield, which was essentially a, a canvas and, and wooden structure that would be wrapped around a, uh, a tank in order to make it look like a, a 10-ton truck. Uh, and it's a great example of repackaging. It's, it's literally putting the packaging of a tank on the outside, sorry, of a, of a truck on the outside of a, of a tank. Um, but that scales up to larger processes, you know, movements, uh, and actions can also be, be repackaged. And there are a variety of, of other um, strategies as well. But, it, but essentially, fooling experts is about giving them what they expect to see in terms of creating the, the patterns um, that are used for, for sense-making. Are there also attempts to get into the um, other sort of cycles within RPD? So to get in, you know, the mental simulation cycle and did, does it go that far? Is it? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very much so. I mean, what, one of the fundamental tenets of a lot of deception is that you, you never want to give uh, your target the entire solution uh, on, on a plate. You want to make them work to have to derive meaning. Uh, and construct their understanding of the world. You want them to invest effort in building 
themselves their own understanding uh, of what they, they think is happening. So splitting the, the, the cues up, putting cues um, in, you know, fragmenting the, the pattern very deliberately across time and space so that they, they have to work to go off and search and discover parts of the, the, you know, the cue sequences that form these patterns uh, is a, a fundamental uh, principle. Um, you could also create patterns with gaps that uh, prompt people into to searching for additional information uh, that um, you can combine with with planting. So putting information where you know people are going to search to, to formulate the pattern. And uh, yeah, I found myself drawing very significantly from the data frame model as a basis for, for understanding patterns uh, and the, the the pattern recognition process, the the loops within the data frame model, so reframing, uh, elaboration cycles, and preservation cycles, uh, are really useful ways to to, to think about um, the process of, of sense making for deception. You, know, you want to prompt erroneous recognition. Um, you want to prompt abandonment of, of correct sense making, get people to reframe onto erroneous sense making, um, cast doubt on, on correct sense making uh, and preserve the, the erroneous sense making that they're, they're forming, particularly in light of contradictory evidence. Um, so finding ways to try and explain away all, all, all the um, uh, things to do with effective decision-making not explaining away anomalies uh, with deception. You want to prompt explaining away of, of anomalies that may indicate um, the reality of, of what is happening. Just a bit of a side note. My family and I have been, uh, since the holidays, playing these murder mystery games now that you can buy mm-hmm. and they'll a whole you know unsolved crime uh it's been I, I, everything you're saying uh, i can now think back to to exactly seeing that uh we've been trying to get through these but um yeah it's very clever what they're doing but um mm-hmm. it's also interesting just to sort of watch different sort of members of the family go after different things and so <laughs> some of them will jump right into the you know the uh interrogation interviews uh some of us some of us, some of us will uh, look at more of the sort of hard evidence that's being presented in terms of the picture showing you. And so, uh, yeah, there's now a whole cottage industry uh, that's taken advantage of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there are, there are whole whole series of these uh, games and uh, that, that seem to be uh, becoming popular at the moment. And uh, I, I think they're very interesting in, in, in terms of deception. I think there's a lot of opportunity for... Um, Generating games are, are, are a lot richer by by bringing in an understanding of, of deception and deceptive uh, strategies. So, uh, and there have been some very interesting um, computer games uh, that have been developed. Uh, there were a few military uh, strategy games that were based around uh, deception. So, uh, yeah, it can be very very entertaining uh, amongst friends. Um, things that uh, g- games that do involve. Um, deception or, or, or lying can be very entertaining. This is kind of a fun question. Uh, so uh, imagine that you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice magic. On pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice magic. What would you ask? It's uh, 
a tricky, tricky question. Now, I, I think the term practice, I, I'm presuming here that we're, we're not talking about practice in terms of people sitting in their bedroom practicing magic. Um, but uh, it's also interesting because I, th I think there's a difference between people that perform magic, um, you know, the big, very big quotations that do tricks versus people that design magic and design um, you know, illusions and uh, sort of methods for, for, for fooling people. Those can be very different. Uh, and, you know, similarly, those, those people, you may be an expert in performance, you may be an expert in design, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a, an expert in, in teaching um, magic or, or in applying the principles uh, of magic elsewhere. So it's, it's difficult to... Um, sort of come up with a single question that, that addresses all these different angles. But I, I think for me, a, a, an interesting question would be to understand where people have struggled with magic, either with its performance or, or with, with magic theory, understanding where they have found approaches to be difficult to implement and, and why. Really trying to get at their their experience of of employing or studying or um, you know, presenting magic um, that that would be the, the the kind of angle in that I, I would use probably with cheating using a, a few follow up questions as well but uh, yeah under, understanding where people have struggled and encountered difficulties within the, the the field of magic for me would be very interesting. So if you had this one question and you were to ask them what, you know, what is what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered in the field of magic mm. listening for? What, what do you have to learn from that? Um, I guess uh, struggling in moving from theory to practice. You're just knowing how an effect works doesn't mean that you can necessarily perform <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can perform that uh, effect. You know, the process of standing in front of people and successfully enacting a set of strategies and movements uh, for folding them can be a very, very different experience from, in particular, reading it in in a book. Um, and that process of of learning on the job through sometimes hard won experience getting getting busted stuff not working um and gradually learning how to perform and use those strategies in in a way that affects uh, is effective and fools people um really it's it's you know <laughs> learning magic from from reading a book is like trying to learn how to swim by by reading a book you, you've got to go out there and, and do it in front of real people uh to to really start acquiring the the the, the street smarts of of how to employ the, the 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 theory in the real world so you know, stories around failure and people getting it wrong and what they learned and what they did differently uh, would really be the sort of uh, things I'd be be listening out for. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, um, do you perform magic? Where, where do you perform? 
uh, under duress, I uh, perform, <laughs> or under the influence of alcohol uh, occasionally. I, um, I I describe myself as a, a student of magic. I, I love magic. I, I study it uh, a lot. I have spent a lot of time working with magicians, hanging around with magicians. Um, but I, I, my love of magic is in the uh, underlying psychology of, of, of how it works. Um, I do perform i have i've been paid to perform magic um but it's not naturally where where my interest lies um primarily where i have demonstrated magic i've been doing that in the context of uh, education to be to exemplify certain principles of deception or counter deception um so it's been very useful being able to perform some magic to be able to fool military students in a, in a classroom. Um, because if you're training them in counter-deception, one of the things you want to give them is experience of being fooled. And it's very difficult to, to do that in a, in a classroom setting. But by fooling them with magic and then deconstructing the processes through which they were fooled, and in particular, teaching them how to avoid being fooled um, by uh, magic or certainly less likely to be fooled by magic, um, a lot of those principles translate into not being fooled in, in other areas. So the, the, the clues to the deception that is underpinning a magic effect generically can be taken and applied into any area where deception is being employed to look for similar clues. Again, it it's all relates to understanding the generic underlying patterns that enable deception to, to work. So... Yes, I do perform magic, but it tends to be in, in classrooms for exemplifying and demonstrating certain principles rather than putting them on shows. But under duress, I have done that as well. So. <laughs> so, so one of the things you're highlighting that's true about so many domains is that um, there's lots to, learn, to be learned theoretically, and that's really important. But there's also this critical experiential component. So actually performing the magic yourself in front of other humans or performing the deception, um, you know, there's a whole, a whole another set of skills around that. And then there's also something to be learned from being deceived from being on the other side of that. Very, very much so. Yeah. I, I, I think the last point in particular, the sort of symbiotic relationship between deception and counter deception, you know, if, if, if I want to be the world's best deceiver, um, obviously I want to, understand deception but i also want to be hanging around with the, the world's best counter deception experts to to understand the processes they're going to use to catch me out and i want to know what i'm up against in order to inform my approach uh, for how i'm going to try and overcome those those methods and that body of of knowledge and and similarly for for counter deception um if my job is to catch people out i want to go and spend time with the best deceivers understanding how they're going to fool me um and that looking at the the, the problem from both the offensive and the defensive perspectives i think is absolutely fundamental to informing best practice in in both of those areas yeah, but I imagine there's some challenge in finding those people. So when you study firefighters, firefighters are everywhere, and and you know, uh, and and they are called firefighters. But um, like, uh, are you know, who are deception experts, or who do you, who do you study? Well, um, I mean, one of the 
issues when you start looking at the generic patterns is that you can draw knowledge and understanding from any domain in which it is practiced. I mean, over, over the years, I have been very fortunate in being able to spend a lot of time with deception practitioners in, in different domains. I've, I've organized uh, conferences on um, you know, learning from other domains. Uh, at, uh, when I was at the working at the Defence Academy, I organised a, a military deception conference uh, entitled Learning from Other Domains and, and brought in magicians, uh, con artists, um, Hollywood special effects guys. Um, you know, I've also had the opportunity to work with um, yeah, immersive theatre designers, prop makers, prosthetics designers, lighting engineers, uh, audio illusion researchers, uh, art forgers, art authenticators, um, you know, forensic archaeologists, uh, microbiologists, uh, <laughs> spending time anywhere where people employ deception to shape the understanding of, of an audience, you, you can learn about deception from. So um, because deception is everywhere, finding people that are, are experts in some aspect of deception, even if that's not how they frame what they do, um, you can pick up hugely valuable knowledge from from all of these different areas. So it's, it's not hard at all, in, in my experience. Yeah, it reminds me, a couple of years ago, I was doing some work with uh, folks that produce pet food. Uh, and <laughs> some of what you're saying uh, takes it takes a very different context there, but some of the same principles are mm. are in action. Um, so, so, Simon, you told us about the first two 15-year chapters. Uh, what What is the next 15-year chapter looking like? <laughs> and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, too, about the blog and the book. Yeah, um, so, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky that uh, at the moment I, I have the opportunity of, of pursuing those those projects that uh, I find particularly interesting. Uh, and really my, my goals are to, to try and work in areas where I can hang around with interesting people and in particular where I can learn new, new things. Um, there are... Areas that I'm, I'm very keen to explore in, in more detail. I'm, I'm fascinated by things like immersive theatre, where you're creating these environments to bring people into and give them experiences that they would never otherwise be able to have and, and um, stimulating their understanding and their, their, um, their creating an emotional, engaging journey for them. Uh, and I've been very lucky to spend a little bit of time working with um, a couple of theatre companies and also did a, a, a training course with Punch Drunk, uh, spent a week with them learning how they design immersive uh, experiences uh, for people that uh, was very, very interesting. Uh, and I'm think there are lots of opportunities to bring knowledge of, of deception and influence into those 
kinds of, of applications. Um, I think sport is a very interesting area where there are very significant opportunities to broaden the, the, the repertoire of, of how deception can be used in a way that's ethical and legal for gaining competitive advantage. And in many sports, deception is a, is a fundamental strategy that is used for fooling the opposition, whether it's um, you know, dummy runners taking a, a free kick in, in soccer or the, the very pattern-based um, football, American football plays that are used that rely on deception. But my personal view is that uh, we're really scratching the surface um, coming from a perspective of deception, there is just a huge opportunity for for broadening uh, how deception can be used in, in sports. So those are, are, are very interesting uh, areas that I would be keen to explore more. Um, for, for me, probably the, the, the biggest issue at the moment is tackling fake news. And I, I think the storming of the Capitol three weeks ago is... Um, a very clear uh, indication of the, the consequences of, of um, falsehood and, and fake news. And when you think about that in the context also of things like COVID, misinformation, conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers, um, and you know, genuine hostile states uh, influence campaigns that we have very clear evidence of, there is just this tide of falsehood that uh, is part of our, our lives now, uh, you know, beyond the, the, the sort of uh, simple examples that I, I was talking about earlier, things that have a real societal impact. And I really think that there is a lot more that can be done in terms of creating a, a, a step change in things like media literacy. Um, and uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's a difficult area. At the moment, conspiracy theorists tell their followers to, you know, don't take my word for it, go out and do the research. Um, and those followers will go out and they will do the research and they will read up on a lot of stuff, all of which is confirming the uh, the conspiracy theories. So how people make sense of the, the, the infosphere how information is presented, how it's handled, how it's um, uh, made available to people. I, th I think there's a, a heck of a lot more that can be done in that space. Uh, the area of pre-bunking, uh, I think, has a, a, a lot of uh, opportunities. So, uh, it again, relates to getting people better tuned in into how information can be used to, to mislead um, their essentially their, their sense-making processes. There are some very interesting um, developments in the area of educational games for countering fake news. There was a, a recent game that uh, is a sort of multi-agency product that's come out of the US State Department's um, Global Engagement Center, and I think also the Homeland Security, um, Cybersecurity uh, Agency, uh, in conjunction with, I know University of Cambridge were involved. It's called uh, Harmony Square. It's a free online game 
that um, educates you about fake news in a very engaging way where you, you essentially play a disinformation officer that's going to create uh, false information campaigns. And it centralizes on the role of emotion within information as a very uh, engaging and persuasive way of affecting people's uh, belief beliefs. So uh, those sorts of um, things are, are, are very interesting, but a lot of them are not drawing from the large body of knowledge that exists about how these phenomena really work. I, I think also opportunities for, sorry, I should also say that the um, Harmony Square, there was an article in uh, the most recent Harvard uh, Misinformation Review uh, online journal uh, where that game has been evaluated and shown to reduce people's tendency to immediately buy into fake news so there's you know some tantalizing evidence that these sorts of uh, approaches have potential um and uh, i think it's also really good to to see the social media platforms are, uh, are labeling and refuting fake news um but my personal view is that there's a, a lot more that can be done by drawing from an understanding of deception and, and influence more broadly to develop um way more potent approaches for, for trying to deal with this this tidal wave of, of falsehood. And all of this is really founded on properly understanding the phenomena. Uh, and I think our, our understanding of sense-making, decision-making has a, a lot to contribute, uh, as well as an understanding of this symbiotic relationship between deception and, and counter-deception. So that's a, an area that I think is um, very, very... Uh, open to bringing in some of the areas that I, I've been spending a, a lot of time working in. And uh, I'm, I'm very keen to, to try and make a contribution to, to that, that area uh, as well. Um, yeah, and my, my blog, uh, deceptionbydesign.com, is really just a uh, repository for, for where I uh, put some of my my thinking uh, about deception. There are various um, articles on there about what deception is, how deception works, uh, the ethics of um, deception, um, various applications, things like uh, parasitic deception and, and how deception is being used to try and fight malaria, for example. Um, there are a set of book chapters that uh, I've been publishing over the last couple of years in a series of magic books called The Shift, where I've been looking at the relationship between magic and deception more broadly. Um, and it includes a, um, a, an article on um, why some aspects of magic do not translate into deception more broadly. Uh, people get very seduced by how uh, interesting magic sounds, but there are some very significant limitations, I feel, in magic's ability to, to generalize entirely. Um, and also have uh, an article on there about uh, counter-deception and the way in which uh, magicians can use counter-deception theory to improve the, the potency of their magic effects. So, yeah, it, it's really just a sort of dumping ground for some of my, my thinking. Uh, and the book is something that's been a, a, a long time in, in development. It's a, um, a book that attempts to both explain the ubiquity of deception uh, that is all around us, but then looks at 
processes for making sense of deception, for deconstructing deception, for formulating deception, and for countering deception using a set of, of frameworks that are based on you know, years of experience of, of working in these fields, uh, educating uh, and training people in, in, in these these areas. Uh, and uh, the, the, the book is, is finished. Um, Robert Hoffman very kindly spent a lot of time providing a fantastic uh, review. Um, you know, went through it with a fine-tooth comb. And my subsequent editing process has taken, been taking a, a, a very long time, partly because I've, I've been uh, drawn off and seduced by all these other interesting projects that have come up, and I've been working on it in a very piece, piecemeal way, and it's been a, a very tortuous and is uh, certainly at the moment an ongoing process of, of editing the book. Um, but of course, so over that time, so much has happened in terms of particularly fake fake news um, and recent events and also technological developments that uh, I also need to be uh, updating the book to reflect some of the the major uh, things that are happening in the world of deception and how deception is currently in the world. Um, So the book is very much an ongoing process, but I'm absolutely determined this year to get all the edits and uh, updates done. Uh, and uh, hopefully that uh, will will see the light of day in the not too distant future. I well, hope it's so. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really interesting and and really timely. And um, I will be the first in line. Thanks. All right, we're going to wrap up with uh, with one fun question. Uh, I have no hope for myself because I usually get these wrong anyway, but. I feel like if I get this one right, I will have erased all my prior uh, incorrect guesses because you are a professional deceiver. So if um, if you tell us two truths about yourself and one lie, we'll try to guess the lie. And um, and if I can guess it against you, I, I will I will redeem myself. <laughs> I, I think the uh, notion that those that can do and those that can't teach could not be better applied to, to myself. I'm a terrible liar. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I stand any, any chance uh, at all of um, fooling you, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. <clears throat> so uh, in November 1989, I was doing some data collection on an exercise, an army exercise in Soltau in northern Germany. And towards the end of the first week there, the Berlin Wall fell. And so on the the Saturday, a group of us drove three hours east to get to Berlin to join in the celebrations. That's uh, number one. Uh, Number two, when I was 10 years old, I entered the UK Cluedo Championships that were held in London. And Cluedo is the UK name for a board game that I think in the US is called Clue with um, Professor Plum and Mrs. Peacock and Colonel Mustard. Uh, You're talking about the sort of murder mystery thing. Um, And in the the, the face of stiff competition, uh, entirely from adults, I somehow made it through to the, the, the very final deciding game. And there were four of us playing, and uh, it was 
sort of competition rules, which are, are slightly different. Uh, so you're actually scored. And the, the top three players were going to make it through to the World Championships in, in Paris. And uh, unfortunately, I came fourth, which I, I think is still okay for a, a 10-year-old. Uh, but I narrowly missed <laughs> traveling to Paris for the World Championships. And then uh, the third uh, case, uh, about two years ago, I was approached by a five-time Emmy-winning Hollywood TV writer who wanted to, to discuss working uh, with him to develop a TV series based loosely around my career in deception. So, uh, yeah, so it was uh, the Berlin Wall, 10-year-old uh, clue prodigy, and uh, a TV show based on my career. You want to go first, Brian? I think you're a terrific liar, first of all. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, but here's what I'm, I'm going to go with the first one, because that's one that you could have just made up based on world events. The others are quite personal, so that's, that's why I'm hinging on the first. So I have the same guess. I... Um, yeah, you completely seem like you could have been a, a 10-year-old Clue champion. Um, and you have a fascinating life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going with, with mm. number one. Well, I, I said I was a, a terrible liar, and uh, you you were both correct. Um, <laughs> um, one of the, the principles of, of being a good liar is that um, you should try and make your, your lies as close to the, the truth as possible. And uh, I very nearly did go to uh, the, the Berlin Wall. I, I was in Germany on an exercise uh, and the Berlin Wall fell. Um, and uh, there was a, uh, a, a, a bus that was being organized. So all the, the scientists that are out there were going to uh, East Berlin to, to join in the celebrations. Uh, unfortunately for myself and a, a couple of colleagues, um, uh, the day before the Berlin Wall came down, um, we got talking to a, a, a guy in, in a bar who wanted to practice his English and um, persuaded us to join him on the, the Saturday for cafe and cook and uh, coffee and cakes. And um, in, in lieu of anything better to do, we had uh, agreed to do that. And so when the Berlin Wall fell and everyone else was going off to Berlin, um, we were socially obliged to go and drink coffee and, and eat cake with this guy. And so I can say that I was in uh, Germany uh, when the Berlin Wall fell, but I didn't go to Berlin. I, I was eating cake in a cafe. So um, uh, it, it was close to the truth, but I, I just missed out on it. Excellent. Finally, I am redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Simon. It's really been interesting. Um, I think we could probably go on and on. Uh, but for today, I think we'll wrap up. It's really been uh, great to talk to you. Yeah, uh, thanks so much. Um, really good to, to catch up with you guys. And thank you all for listening. For the NDM Podcast, I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.
Thank you.